Good Tuesday afternoon to you. I am Pastor Michael Miano from the Blue Point Bible Church, also the director and the host of this broadcast, <laughs> director of the Power of Preterism Network. Excited to be on this broadcast with you this morning. If we may uh, just open up with a song, and then we'll get into prayer, and we'll get right into today's discussion. Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll be going through to chapter 14 today. Make disciples of all nations, 
Have we even made them in our own nation? Come on, Christians. Missions exist because worship doesn't. People don't worship the God that made them. We get ambassadors. Let's go. Right, that was Lecrae with Send Me. You'll obviously see the reference in our reading if you have been doing the reading from Exodus chapter 4 to, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3 to chapter 14. You'd see the context of Send Me. Obviously, you know that Moses rebels against the Lord's call, doesn't understand why the Lord would call him. You know, someone who cannot speak right, someone who's tattooed with gang tattoos all over his face and his arms, you know, you get it. So, uh, again, I, I... Give it all to the grace of God that we are able, that we are called as ambassadors for his glory. Amen. Please join me in prayer today, and we will continue to get into the rest of the details. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to get on the hair, on the hair, on the airwaves, Lord, and uh, continue to be expounding upon your truth, Lord. We thank you for your spirit that enlightens us and enlivens the scriptures, Lord, and gives us the ability to continue to praise you. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the grace that you have provided through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we give you all the glory and all our praise. And in through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, completely sorry about that. I guess I had an internet break here. Um, I was just telling you a little bit about the excitement of this upcoming conference and um, all that we look to have here at Blue Point Bible Church. Um, great speakers, great stuff. I'm excited. Actually, this morning I got to have the opportunity again for the third time to meet with Pastor Robert Ianicelli to talk about the conversation him and I will be having on Saturday evening. Pastor Robert Ianicelli comes from kind of a middleman view between amillennial and postmillennialism, and uh, we'll be presenting his view of the scripture, the totality of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that story that's being told. Um, he'll be sharing that on Saturday the 21st, and I'll be sharing possibly a contrasting view, obviously from the preterist perspective, um, in regards to all things being fulfilled and how that relays to us today. So that's going to be an exciting thing. Again, um, we'll have it all videotaped for those of you that are not able to come to the conference. Those of you that are listening locally, please come out 7 p.m. on Saturday evening. Again, we have something. We have 7 p.m. Friday night to 9.45. We have speakers including um, Joe Daniels, uh, Deacon Ed Silsby, um, some gentlemen from Canada, and uh, a video presentation from Don Preston. On Saturday, we have Norman Neal, Derek Lambert, Jen Fishburne, uh, Joe Daniels. Again, it's just so many people coming. It's an amazing thing that's happening here. This morning, I went to a local meeting between Long Island pastors, and a couple things were said that were quite interesting. I thought one of them really applies to the truth of preterism, and it's that one of the pastors shared that he believes that a weeping, sweeping, and reaping revival is coming, not only to the churches here on Long Island, but the churches across the nation. And I'm in full agreement. I, I believe that what he said is very important, that it must begin with a weeping. It must begin for Christians, with Christians, looking at the areas that we've failed to make known the manifold wisdom of God. What are some of those areas? What are some of the ways that we need to improve our the teaching aspects of the Word of God as well as living the aspects of the Word of God? And um, I believe that the total depravity of mankind gives us the continual ability to be able to grow in these areas. And ultimately, this shows the grace of God. So take advantage and really walk in the the unity of the Word and in teaching and in application. Amen. So I want to jump right into our reading today because I do have a lot to share. And obviously what we're doing is we've been continuing our uh, preparatory studies for the coming Sunday. Um, each week we have a study for the church to do in regards to the Returning to Our First Love Bible series. Our reading for this pa this week here is Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to Exodus chapter 14, which I will be speaking about this coming Sunday. Last week we ended with Exodus chapter 2, verse 25, and I just want to read that verse to you. Actually, I'm going to read verses 20 through 
I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter here. Okay, I'm going to read verses uh, 23 through 24. And it says, Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites still groaned beneath their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their pleas for deliverance rose up to God. God heard their cries and remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the Israelites and felt deep concern for their welfare. So now, just starting from there today, the first thing you would want to do in your study to do a proper exegetical study would be to go back and find those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in my studies, I don't currently have them written down yet because I'm kind of, again, this is preparatory. Um, I'm actually writing that down in my notes. You'd want to go back, and again, we, you remember some of them. Let's let's just go the, the Broadway here. Um, don't go to too Broadway. Just go the Broadway, amen? So... Abraham, God provide, uh, promises to bless his descendants, whoever will curse him, they will be cursed, whoever will bless him, they will be blessed, and his children he will become the multitude, a father of the multitude of nations, uh, Abraham, and he will bless all nations. So we know that the children of Abraham, then we have uh, Isaac and Esau become the children of Abraham. Esau becomes the firstborn, but he is end up cast away, and Isaac is referred to as the only son of Abraham, therefore showing the covenantal nature of Scripture, the covenantal context that we're dealing with in the Old Testament. So Isaac, as the only son of Jacob, therefore, then births his two sons, Esau and Jacob. Sorry, I hope I didn't mention Abraham having Esau. I meant Ishmael. So now Jacob has Esau, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and you, you know the birthright plot. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday. Uh, Jacob ends up uh, taking the, you know, Jacob being true to his name, the supplanter, takes Esau's birthright and then walks in it and then eventually wrestles with an angel to get rid of this kind of plague, this the fact that he's a thief and a, you know, a supplanter. He he wrestles with an angel to receive a blessing and then his blessing is that he will struggle with God, he will fight with God, and then God gives him this promise that he will bless his descendants thereafter. And obviously we know that through Isaac the seed would be reckoned, that would be Jacob. And we know that this is a type pointing to the larger narrative happening in the New Testament where the children of Abraham are not the specific lineage of Abraham through the flesh. They are the spiritual children of Abraham that come through the seed, Jesus, and therefore those who are in Christ become children of Abraham. Again, the seed would be reckoned through Isaac. This would not be the fleshly firstborn as Ishmael was. This would be the spiritual child of promise as Isaac was. Again, Abraham operates outside of covenant, outside of the will of God, impregnates Hagar. Hagar births Ishmael. Now, what God does in all of this story is he shows that, no, 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 it's not about the natural. So God removes that, to, uh, you know, Abraham dismisses Hagar and Ishmael, gives them a basic blessing that they will bless and prosper, so forth, and then reverts all the attention onto Isaac because the seed will be blessed through the seed of promise, that of the Spirit. And now Isaac is being reckoned to the Lord. And then we know, we read of the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, and this is passed down all the way till Jacob. And then we end up right here in Exodus chapter 2 with Jacob blessing his sons at the end of Genesis. Jacob blessing his sons, Jacob dying. Everything ends up in Egypt. Now, you know, that there was a famine in the land, so now they all navigate over to Egypt, and now the Pharaoh dies that favored Joseph, and now all of a sudden they find themselves in bondage, right? And uh, God has noticed. God has noticed the Israelites, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has noticed their burden, and he's coming to rescue them. So here, immediately beginning in Exodus chapter 3, we have one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he went deep into the wilderness near Sinai, the mountain of God. So I have a bunch to say right there. i got to detail a lot of this. Now, we begin with a story, right? It's like, okay, so now Israel's burdened. Here God begins, one day Moses. And it's all going to start with Moses here. We're going to find a, a start with Moses. And one of the things I'm, I'm looking to... Uh, detail is the similarities between Moses and Jesus and how all of that comes about. And there's really a lot to say about Exodus, but you know, we're, we're going to keep reading here. Um, one thing I will point out is that he goes to this mountain of God, and we read about the mountain of God many times in Scripture. I would you know, urge you to do a Google study on that. Um, we know that the mountain of God at this point is Mount Sinai, and this would correspond to areas such as Isaiah 2.2, 2, 
Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah chapter 14, Psalm chapter 48, all talking about this mountain of God. And actually, if you will, I'm going to read Psalm 48. All right, here we are at Psalm 48. I'm reading out of a kind of a wishy-washy translation right now, the New Living Translation, just kind of using the Life Application Study Bible for some of my studies. But listen to this psalm of the descendants of Korah. How great is the Lord and how much we should praise him in the city of our God, which is on his holy mountain. It is magnificent in elevation. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. God himself is in Jerusalem's towers. He reveals himself as her defender. The kings of the earth joined forces and advanced against the city. When they saw it, they were they were terrified and ran away. They were gripped with terror, like a woman writhing in the pain of childbirth, or like a mighty ship of Tarshish being shattered by a powerful east wind. We had heard the city's glories, but now we have seen it ourselves. The city of the Lord Almighty, it is the city of our God. He will make it safe forever. O oh God, we meditate on your unfailing love as we worship in your temple. As your name deserves, O oh God, you will be praised to the ends of the earth. You, your strong right hand, is filled with victory. Let the people on Mount Zion rejoice. Let the towers of Judah, towns of Judah, be glad, for your judgments are just. Go inspect the city of Jerusalem. Walk around and count the many towers. Take note of the fortified walls, the tower of all citadels, that you may describe them to future generations. For that is what the Lord is like. He is our God forever and ever, and until and he will be our guide until we die. Amen. So here clearly you see that the mountain of the Lord refers to the temple. The mountain of the Lord is referring to Jerusalem at this point. However, Mount Sinai, I don't believe, is Moses going up to Jerusalem. So you clearly see the beginning of the covenant here, the covenant that would have its center in the temple. Now, one of the details is that um, in the ancient Near Eastern perspective, which we're kind of moving out of once we get into uh, Moses, but still holds that the truth of thought is that it was not unpopular for the ancient Near Eastern people to go to high places to worship their gods, being that it would bring them closer to God. And we're going to see that here in the story of Moses, how Moses happens to be one of these uh, mountain guys that it goes up to the top of these mountains an awful lot. But again, I just want to note that mountain of God is a phrase that you'll see many times in your your Bible. I'm just trying to find, I thought I had a link I wanted to share regarding the mountain of God, but I guess that is gone. Give me one moment here, I'll find that for you. All right, here we go. I'm referring to uh, Psalm 48. There's a reading that I want to share from a fellow preterist. Here it is. It's uh, by Jeff Carter. It says, To the mistrust, the mistrust mountain again we go. The misted mountain again we go. Sorry. To the misted mountain again we go, a hero's journey far to the north, across desperate plains and mystic fields, to the mountain, Olympus. Agra, Zaphos, Eden, to the mountain Zion, to the cosmic mountain at the heart of the north, to the misted mountain again we go, a hero's journey far to the north, across, across desperate plains and mystic fields, to the mountain Olympus, Agra, Zaphos, Eden, to the mountain Zion. On its snow-capped, the cosmic mountain at the heart of the north, a mountain whose head is lifted high in the heavens, whose peak pierces the clouds. On its snow-capped pinnacle beyond the clouds dwells the gods in the city of God, the sons of God in the palace of the Most High, and there forever in perpetual worship and service they sing praise. Who may ascend to, ascend to your holy hill? Who may dwell upon your holy mountain? We tremble at the base of the mountain, afraid to proceed. Yahweh is king and the people tremble. Pearls of thunder and flashes of lightning upon the mountain, a trumpet blast, a dense cloud of smoke and fear. It is an eruption of presence, for here the Lord is enthroned. Here the Lord is encircled by the living creatures, six-winged eagles burning like bronze with face of thousand eyes, cherubim and seraphim who shout, Holy, 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 until the heavens are rent and the earth is broken. Here is the holy mountain, towering in beauty, towering in terrible beauty, the terrible beauty of holiness. Here is the mountain towering in beauty, the joy of the world, and we will proceed. What we have come to is the holy mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. God himself lives here. 
God himself lives here, and we have stepped into his world, onto his mountain, his holy hill, in complete confidence, boldly entering the sanctuary of his presence. And so look around, look at Zion, walk right through, admire her walls, admire her towers, examine the alabaster palaces, and number the gates, each inscribed with the names of the holy apostles. Sit beside the river that flows through the center, and lounge in her pleasant gardens, the holy mountain towering in beauty. Diamond and gold and lapis lazuli, turquoise and emerald, topaz and pearl, all manner of precious stone. She is the holy mountain towering in beauty. The nations come to her and kings have assembled. Conspiring kings have made alliance to advance together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, shields raised. They march in coordinated assault against the holy hill, but they are rebuffed. When they saw the unseen, and when they knew themselves to be seen, they trembled, collapsing on the spot. It is a terrible thing to stand in the presence, a dreadful thing to fall into his hands. He is a consuming fire. His breath, creative winds and creative, creating spirit, the east wind where pagans look to worship the rising sun, his breath and east wind is wrecker of ships. His voice convulses the desert, his voice over the waters, trembling seizes them, who would ra- those who would rage. And plot together, trembling like that of a woman in labor. He is enthroned upon the mountain and encircled by the living creatures, laughs and makes mockery of them. As we have so heard, and we have seen in the holy city of God, in the city of God, the army of the our angel armies, forever and ever. On your faithful, ever faithful love. Your name, O Lord, Yahweh, your name and your praise, your name and your praise are sung all over the whole world, out from the peak of holy Zion. The nations hear you, they hear of your great name, and they look to the towering mountain. They look to the mountain of Yahweh, rising higher than the mountains and towering above the heights. They hear your great name, and they say to themselves, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The nations come to her light, streaming to the mountain of God to learn of his law, the law of love. The nations of the world streaming to the mountain of God to be taught his way, the way of love. And there on the mountain of God's presence, they will hammer the weapons of war, swords and spears, rifles and tanks, into implements of peace and production. No longer will they learn how to war among themselves. No longer will they study new and improvised ways to hate and hurt. Instead, they will learn the way of love from the one whose right hand is filled with saving justice. Yahweh, the angel armies, put to end war. He breaks the bows and shatters the spears and says, Be still, be still, and know that I am God. We reflect on your faithfulness, ever faithful love. Your name, O Lord, Yahweh, your name and your praise, and your praise and your praise are sung all over the world from the peak of holy Zion. What we have come to is not the hellfire and brimstone of a vengeful and angry God, so terrible and cruel, not a blazing fire or gloom or darkness or storm, or a voice so awful we beg for deafened ears. What we have come to is Mount Zion, the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where the whole church of the firstborn sons and daughters of God have assembled for the festival, the eternal festival, the wedding supper. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The words of God are true. We have come to God himself. We have come to God himself through the blood, the purifying blood of a new covenant. We have been given possession of an unshakable kingdom, a mighty fortress, an unmovable, unassailable kingdom. Admire her walls, admire her towers, examine the alabaster palaces, number the gates, each inscribed with the names of the holy apostles. Sit beside the river that flows through the center, the river that flows from out from his throne. Clear crystal with the water of life. Eat from the tree of life that grows in the garden of God's presence the resurrection, and the life. Tell future generations that there is such a God as our God forever and ever. Tell them that he is our guide through death, the resurrection, and the life. All who are thirsty, come. All who are thirsty, come. All who are weary and heavy laden, come. Come to the mountain. Come to see him face to face and be seen by him face to face without fear. Come. Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. Glory to God. You can read more about that in Psalms chapter 2, 46, 48, 99, Exodus chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 10 through 12, and Revelation chapters 19 through 22. So again, you see immediately thoughts about the mountain of the Lord. Amen? If I may go into a quick song, and then we're going to get back and we're going to go quite a bit further than simply the mountain of the Lord. Amen? 
Come to the mountain of the Lord. You know, I, I want to say say this. Excuse me. <clears throat> so as we are going through uh, our reading here in Exodus chapters, you know, three through fourteen, you probably wondered as you've been listening so far. Well, now he's spent a lot of time on the mountain of the Lord. I thought we were going to get into the heavy context of Exodus chapters three through fourteen. I want to tell you why I've done this so far, and 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 kind of the I want to explain to you the approach that I am taking to understand Scripture. Um, a couple presuppositions that I'll admit right from the forefront is that, A, I believe that we can learn from a lot of different sources. So you'll see me constantly bounce from source to source. B, I believe that we must find the original audience's understanding. Again, we have, as I've laid out for you, a literal contextual understanding of what's happening to Israel. Nowhere in the, the passage that we have read from Genesis chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 14 should you now have any universal perspective. 
This isn't universal. I, I've already dealt with the story of Noah. I already dealt with the story of Adam. Those are not universal terms. That's modern man imposing himself on a text that he was not involved with. This is an ancient Near Eastern story of generations and generations that was passed along generation to generation. This was not given to the Gentiles. That's why in Ephesians it says that the Gentiles were in the world without God. The mysteries were being made known to Israel. God had only given his wisdom, this divine covenant, to Israel. And, and that doesn't matter whether you start with Adam or you start with Moses. If you start with Adam and you make it a universal thing, you end up with a problem because then where did God all of a sudden stop dealing with everybody? Is it the flood? Is it, the, is it Babel? Why did God all of a sudden just start dealing with Israel? As I've pointed out is what we're following all the way up to Exodus chapter 14 is a specific lineage from Adam to Seth, from Seth to Shem, from Shem to Abram, from Abram to Jacob, from Jacob now we're dealing with his lineage. It's a covenantal story. So, in keeping with that understanding, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the Church of Corinth in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Again, another amazing text that you must understand who the original audience was and who it's being written to. I believe that the Church of Corinth, it's very clear that there was very mixed population. There was a lot of arguments over whether it was you know, better to be a Gentile or better to be a Jew. And that's a lot of what the Apostle Paul is saying in his writings. Now, you know in 1 Corinthians chapters. Uh, 8 through 9, the, the Apostle Paul deals a lot with the liberty that is being given in contrast to that old covenant. Again, a proper understanding, you're going to notice now that Israel is being delivered out of the burden in slavery in Egypt to be given a covenant that uh, be, to be clothed by God. You know, Again, they're, they're being called out as Adam was called out, as Abram was called out, as Jacob was called out. Again, you see this story constantly. They're called out from among their people. So Israel is being called out from among Egypt where they've been you know, involved in pagan practices, which you're going to see immediately in the text that we're dealing with. Um, his wife really rebukes him in regards to the failure to follow that covenant. And uh, again, that's the context that we're getting just directly from the text, from Genesis chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 14. However, another presupposition I come with is that I believe the apostles – by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have a lot better of an understanding than me. The Apostle Paul very clearly here shows us the covenantal understanding of this passage. Continuing after he's talking about the liberty of the new covenant, he goes on to say this in chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, which with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. Now remember, Apostle Paul's writing to a first century church. So that they would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters. Again, that's the whole story. We're talking about idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and stood up to play. Let us not act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 of them fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. You see, the Apostle Paul is very clearly telling them, that this is a story for them. That the, the way, the proper way to understand that new, te that Old Testament passage about Moses going through the sea and everything else is understanding that they were saved by the providence of God and that they were being pulled out of the idolatry in Egypt. The same thing that was being done in AD seventy in that first century context, the end of the age. They were being pulled out of that the, the doctrines of men, the Judaizers that had you know brought them back into slavery and bondage. So that's why I've been drawing out the, the illusion of the mountain of God, because again, the mountain of God is a type and an antitype in Scripture. You see the mountain of God being used by Mount Sinai, and then you see the mountain of God being reverted and glorified as Mount Zion. You see the same thing with Jerusalem. The present-day Jerusalem is in distress with her people, according to Galatians chapter 4. Then you get to the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and it's glorious, and there's no more curse. We must get type and anti-type right. I know Don Preston deals amazingly with this, this type of stuff. So I urge you to really go and, and look at the type and anti-type of the text. So as we move forward, again, we're, we're talking about the mountain of God. Then we get to God talking to Moses in a bush. And th this you know, should cause some questions. So what I did was I just simply put into my Google, you know, little Google expert here, why did God speak to Moses out of the burning bush? 
And I found an article on gotquestions.org that I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to be taking notes through it myself. And I'm going to read here. The story of God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush is found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 4.23. Through this remarkable event, Moses encounters God on Mount Horeb, and God reveals himself. The burning bush, as described in Exodus chapter 3, is a theophany, the appearance of God in a form that is visible to man. The bush itself was not likely some brandle or thorn bush, and the fire-burning bush was in the form of an angel of the Lord who appeared to him in flames of fire. It was most likely some kind of bramble or thorn bush. Sorry about that. This is the first time in the Bible that the this is the first time the Bible uses the word holy with reference to God in verse five, Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter three, verse five. At the burning bush, God revealed His holiness in a way that had never been revealed before. Moses was so awed by this experience that later, when he wrote his famous victory hymn, he made sure to mention the divine attribute of God's holiness. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And I, I believe that uh, what we're seeing in, in, in Moses being called by God is a very similar story to the story of Adam. I believe it, it, it shows very clearly the calling of a man, the, the bringing out of the darkness in the, the pagan nations around them, and establishing a relationship with them, calling man to himself. There are several reasons why God revealed himself to Moses out of the burning bush. First, God reveals himself as a fire that is an image of his holiness. God is a consuming fire. He's set apart from all other gods. He's jealous God. All through the Bible, fire is used as a picture of purifying and refining quality of God's holiness. This is further evidenced when God commands Moses to remove his sandals, where you are standing as holy ground. Also kind of reminding us of the nakedness that was in the garden. Here, God was emphasizing to Moses the gap between divine and human. God is transcendent in his holiness, so Moses was not allowed to come close to him. Holiness involves separation. And obviously that's what God is doing. God's holiness means that he is setting everything apart he has made. Holiness is not, simply not righteousness that is a part of it, but it also is his otherness. It is the distinction between the creator and the creature, the infinite distance between God's deity and our humanity. God says, I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, Hosea chapter 9, verse 11. His people respond by saying, there is no one holy like the Lord, First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. So, Moses, so God's appearing to Moses out of his glory, and then we know that God refers to himself as the I am who I am, the great I am, or I am that I am, and... In doing so, he's declaring that he has always existed. He isn't bound by time like we are. There was never a time when God wasn't. He had no fixed point when he was born or brought into being. He has no beginning or end. God is the Alpha and the Omega. So God speaks to Moses out of this burning bush to extend his glory and his holiness and to, to compel Moses to look at him. And obviously we see... Uh, God calls Moses. Moses has a kind of funny response. He doesn't really understand, which I could definitely understand as Moses says, Oh, Lord, I am not a good speaker. I never have been, and I am not now. Even after you have spoken with me, I'm clumsy with my words. The Lord's response is amazing, though. He says, Who makes mouths? <laughs> you know, almost like a, well, I'm the one that's responsible for this work. You think I can't do anything. And what does he say? He says, Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and do as I have told you. I will help you speak. I will tell you what to say. And then the Lord, obviously, Moses keeps responding, please, someone else, send someone else, please, send someone else. And that's why I played that song for you earlier in the show. Lord, send me. We must be willing to take hold of that call. And so then God sends Moses, and he, uh, obviously, you read a lot about this this staff. You know, one of the things I, I had written in my notes was that uh, Moses goes back to Egypt, but he brings the staff with him. Obviously, we see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. It says, So Moses took his wife, his sons, put them on a donkey, headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand, he carried the staff of God. So let's talk a little bit about the staff of God. I found this website I thought was pretty interesting, and I just wanted to kind of read through it with you, review it, kind of bring you in on my studies. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me? The Lord and say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, it became a snake, and he ran from it. The Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reaches out his hand, takes hold of the snake, and turns it back, and it turns back into a staff in his hand. This, says the Lord, is the way that they will believe that the Lord God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. God gave to Moses a monstrous commission, deliver Israel out of the land of Egypt. 
Moses, being only human, felt ill-equipped for the task. What is that in your hand? And obviously, God, we did the whole staff. When God finishes showing to Moses that his staff was an instrument of divine power and authority, it was all he needed to fulfill his task. With that rod, Moses defeated the magicians of Egypt, stripped Pharaoh of his power, humiliated Egypt's gods, and brought Israel out from slavery to freedom out of the, on the edge of the promised land. How we, like Moses, treat prayer as common, insignificant, simply a walking stick to help us through uneven journey of life. But it is so much more. In the hands of commanders and prophets, the walking stick was called the staff. And again, this, this article is alluding the staff to be uh, intercessory prayer. I'm not exactly inclined to uh, <laughs> agree with that. I, uh, again, we, very clearly we see uh, Moses builds an ark out of wood, saves the people. Moses has a rod out of wood and a staff out of wood, saves the people. Jesus gets put on a tree, wood, and saves mankind. There was no mystical connotation of the staff or rod. It was often used as metaphor throughout the Holy Bible, alluding to the divine omnipotence of the Lord. Here, Isaiah the prophet said metaphorically, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of fifty, the horrible man, the counselor, the skillful artisan, the ex expert enchanter. The staff of bread denoted support, the power of truth, of goodness. And the staff of water, support, and power from the truth of faith. The staff of bread is mentioned similarly with, within Holy Old Testament book of Ezekiel, the great prophet, in the following reference. Um, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 16. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 16. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 13. Also in the Holy Old Testament book of Isaiah, it is written, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff of whose hand is in my indignation. And you can read many times about the rod or the staff. Um, the, rod, the Lord's rod and staff comforts his people, as we read in Psalm 23. So I believe that's what's happening there with that staff. Is, and again, I, I believe that that was a great allegory of using that as far as intercessory prayer. However, I believe we're imposing that rather than allowing the text to give us that answer. So then here in chapter 4, we reread this, and I found this quite interesting. On the journey when Moses and his family, I'm starting at verse 24, on the journey when Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted Moses and was about to kill him. But Zephorah, his wife, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She threw the foreskin at Moses' feet and said, What a blood-smeared bridegroom you are to me. When she called Moses a blood-smeared bridegroom, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go out to the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron traveled to the mountain of God, where he found Moses and greeted him warmly. Moses then told Aaron everything the Lord had commanded them to do and say. And he told them about a mirac the miraculous signs they were to perform. And obviously the next thing they do is they go to the Pharaoh. And uh, it's almost a humorous response. Obviously the Pharaoh is, you know, who is your God? I, I could care less about this God that you think that is demanding that I let your people go into the wilderness to worship the Lord. So then what the Pharaoh's response is, is, oh, okay, well, you know what? I, apparently these people have too much time on their hands, so we're just going to make them a bit more busy. And obviously the, now Moses is like, oh, no, this didn't help the people. You ever help somebody and then it ends up worse for them and how bad you actually feel? I've done that, unfortunately, you know, and I've, I've had people do that to me. So... Moses then goes back, why have you mistreated your own people like this, Lord? Why did you send me? Now he looks like the bad guy, you know? So now the Lord promises, and listen what the Lord's promises to Moses here in Exodus chapter 6. Now you will see what I, the Pharaoh, will, I will do to the Pharaoh, the Lord told Moses, when he feels my powerful hand upon him. He will let my people go. In fact, he will be so anxious to get rid of them that I will force them to leave his land. And God continued, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in solemn covenant with them. Under its terms, I swore to give them the land of Canaan where they are living. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians. I have remembered my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a mighty power and great acts of judgment. I will make you my own special people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who has rescued you from slavery in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will be your very own property. I am the Lord. And obviously Moses goes back to tell the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh will not listen. 
And then we get, in the rest of chapter 6, we get a bunch of uh, descendants of Aaron and Moses. And then we have Moses' staff becomes a snake. And then we, be, be, we immediately begin with the plagues in Egypt. We know that there, in chapter 7, we read about the plagues of blood that cover up all the waters. Chapter 8, we read about the plague of frogs, plague of gnats, plague of flies, plague of livestock in chapter 9, the plague of boils, the plague of hail, all things I just do not want to be a part of. <laughs> and then we read about the plague of locusts in chapter 10, plague of darkness, and then finally in 11, you get to the most horrendous, that you get the death of the firstborn. Now God has really brought judgment upon the house of Israel, upon Egypt, I'm sorry. And he's, uh, <clears throat> through this story, he's going to save Egypt out from among the uh, out from among the Egyptians. If I may go back to Exodus chapter five, because I believe that that brings up an interesting point here. In Exodus chapter five, verses nineteen through twenty-three, I want to read here. <clears throat> Since Pharaoh would not let his let up on his demands, the Israelite foremen could see that they were in serious trouble. As they left Pharaoh's court, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting outside for them. The four men said to them, May the Lord God judge you for getting us into this terrible situation with Pharaoh and his officials. You have given them an excuse to kill us. And then Moses goes back to the Lord. What Israel failed to realize is that the Lord uses moments of judgment for moments of freedom. And I heard it said very beautifully this morning. I just cannot remember. However, I have on my notes, devastation to destiny. And you see this happen many times in Israel. You know, I even go all the way back to the story of Adam. Israel was blessed, and then it brought devastation. However, the Lord's grace always shows. The Lord will always complete his will and his plan. And the Lord's plan was to have a people in covenant relationship with himself, enjoying his presence. Unfortunately, he initiated that old covenant, and man will naturally go revert back to his innate idolatry and begin to heap commandment upon commandment to make himself righteous. However, what the Lord did was provided Jesus to show that, no, 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 by the law, no man will ever be righteous. By your own righteousness, you cannot establish your own righteousness. You must have a righteousness that was provided by God. And that is a comparison of the entire New Testament to all of this stuff that we're reading about Moses. It was a comparison of the Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant was vanishing. It had its glory, but it was vanishing in that New Testament time. And that old co the New Covenant would come and would be eternal, and the glory would never vanish. That's the context of what we find in our Bible. So again, you have this, um, yeah, I have this sort of coming out. I, I believe... A lot of newer scholars are dealing with this. Uh, N.T. Wright, for example, he's uh, you know one of the new Exodus guys. I know Tom Holland, uh, Don Preston has recommended Tom Holland many times, who talks about the second Exodus and how basically the New Testament is the same thing as that to Exodus moment. That while God had created a covenant with Israel and Israel failed, and now God is pulling them back to himself, in the New Covenant it's the same exact story. Just with a different agenda. Now it's an eternal spiritual kingdom. The, the, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, not the natural. I found an article about Paul Torah, N.T. Wright, and the New Exodus, and I wanted to share some of those, uh, some of that reading with you. Here's a good snippet from N.T. Wright's new two-volume study on the Apostle Paul. Wright is the world's leading Pauline scholar, and his new work totals 1,700 pages, but it is a very easy read. As we shall see, the problem which Paul faces is not simply universal sin, but the failure of Israel to be faithful to divine vocation. Romans chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. This is resolved dramatically in the unveiling of the divine righteousness through the faithfulness of the Messiah Jesus, anticipating the summary of the whole picture in Romans chapter 5, where the action of the Messiah is described as obedience. What we see in 3.22 is Israel faithfulness through which the divine purpose of redemption is accomplished. Hence, in the telling phase, through the redemption which is the Messiah, Jesus. This single phrase anticipates the entire later exposition of the divine rescuing action that is set out in Romans chapters 5 through 8. Scooping it all, as if it, scooping it all up as if it were, and compressing into this little bowl so that it can play a crucial role in the exposition of justification. In Messiah, in other words, and by means of redeeming action accomplished through his faithfulness to the divine Israel purpose of all those who believe are now declared to be in the right. This emerges 
This emerges in several interlocking ways in the entire argument of Galatians chapter 2. The argument turns on distinction between the promises to Abraham, which Paul declares are fulfilled in the Messiah, the giving of Torah, which Paul declares has done its God-given job and is now no longer relevant for the definition of God's people. The single family which has been promised to Abraham can be spoken of as simply Christos in Romans chapter 3 verse 16. This Christos is the Son of God who shares that sonship with all who by the Spirit can call God Father. This has nothing to do with the replacement of old Israel and with a new one, and everything to do with, with Paul's belief that Israel as a whole is summed up and redefined in and by Christ. That indeed is the whole point of the divisive summary in Romans chapter 2. Once again, being in the Messiah and being justified by faith are tightly combined in this passage. It is, in other words, in the Messiah, in the Israel in person, that Paul finds the identity and hope he had formerly sought through his intense observation of Israel's Torah. The status of being justified, declared to be in the right, and member of the people of the one true God, is given on the basis of faith. The faith of the believer, which identifies him as part of the family of the faithful Christos, or the Messiah. So you see... Clearly, you're seeing a, a new exodus being formed in the New Testament, and N.T. Wright has, does a great job of dealing with that. What I wanted to do is refer to an article by Peter Enns called Exodus, the Plagues, and the Cosmic Battle. I'm not going to be reading through that entire article. However, I, I urge you to uh, spend some time, look it up. I'll be sharing a lot more about that on Sunday in my sermon. So if I may just simply end today's broadcast with urging you to really read through Exodus chapter 3 and all the way up to chapter 14. I know that there's so much more to say. There's so many areas to draw out the plagues and contra and, and um, the Exodus plagues and the events of Revelation in the New Testament. There's great emphasis to show through Exodus chapter 12 on the Passover type and anti-type. Obviously, the, the type in the Old Testament, type in the New Testament, type at the beginning of that Old Covenant and the type at the beginning of that New Covenant. Um Again, we, we see, I'm sorry, the anti-type at the end of the new covenant, at the beginning of the new covenant. Um, so many details to draw out. So I look forward to drawing out those details this coming week and uh, having an exciting time here at the Power of Preterism Conference. It's going to be a glorious thing, and uh, I, I pray that you'll make it take advantage to either watch them on YouTube, order the videos when we have them all set up, or be here Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March 20th through 22nd, to see God glorified by his truth. I thank you for tuning in today. I want to lift this moment up in prayer, and I pray that we will continue to search for application through the divine inspiration of Scripture. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. We thank you that we may continue to ponder your Scriptures, Lord, and derive contextual application as well as application in the 21st century. Lord, we give you all the glory. We thank you for being the healing of the nations. We thank you for providing the healing of the nations, and we give you all of our praise, Lord. Thank you for being a God so far above our ways. We worship you in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, thank you for tuning in. Look forward to talking to you this Sunday at 3 p.m. with Derek Lambert and, God willing, Johnny Ova. When your legs don't work like they used to before And I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? Darling, I will be loving you 